0: Welcome, folks, to the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. Sam, what's up? Not much. What's exciting about your world? We're not going to inform them that we just filmed an eight-minute <laughs> intro that we deleted. <laughs> we just filmed... Filmed? I guess we filmed... Recorded. we are not filming. All right. Same concept. We recorded an eight-minute intro that was filled with all kinds of stuff that could get Will in trouble. <laughs> and me, for that matter. We'd both be canceled. Uh, but anyway, talking about vacations upcoming, both of us are heading up to North Carolina before summer's over to be with our in-laws, and so we were talking about that and how much how Will, much fun we're gonna have. <laughs> well, no, I mean we were talking about how much you enjoy your in-laws.
1: You no, know, it makes it sound like that was sarcastic. I am trying to get you I in want trouble to be clear again. That there was nothing troublesome <laughs> in the original recording.
0: For those of you who don't know, Will's in-laws are Pastor Tom and Beth. And he we were talking about how well he gets along with them for for Tom being his boss and his father in law that they act like they're great friends, which is true. So that's a that's a cool dynamic. Yeah. It would stink if that ever went south like it could go bad quickly. <laughs> it's one of those things that hundred percent or zero percent. I
1: think it would be hard to navigate if not.
0: Yeah. So so that's I guess that's a we'll pretend like that's a good segue into our episode today. Because today the The episode is all about one generation blessing the next generation. So as we go into chapters 48 and 49 of Genesis, which is what we're going to focus on today, it's all about blessing the next generation. And to start with, if we remember where we were last week, it was kind of like now we're getting into the part where the narrative, the broad narrative is over, and we're wrapping up a bow on the book of Genesis. So Joseph has been reunited with his brothers. Everything seems great. They're getting along. Joseph is using his authority to give his family the best part of the land of Egypt. We found out last week, sadly, that Joseph also used his authority to enslave the Egyptian people. And so now as we come into chapter 48, you've got Joseph, who is still a governing official. He's still at a different city, but he's taken his family and he has settled them in the, in the city of Ramses in the land of Goshen, the best part of the land. And so now as we are jumping into chapter 48, we see how everything is closing out and how the families are going to be blessed. And so Genesis 48, verse 1, it says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So they've had their reunion so some amount of time has passed, and now Joseph hears that his father is sick. And it's not like he's right down the road. You know, it's it's not like, here's Joseph's house and three doors down, here's Jacob's house. They, they're in different towns at this point, which we'll see later on in this passage. And so it says, he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And those are going to become very familiar names as you go through the rest of the the scriptures, because these are going to be two names that will become two of the larger tribes of Israel and two of the larger territories in Israel. But they're the sons of Joseph. Verse two, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So that blessing meant the world to Jacob. Like that's what he was putting all of his hope in. This is what he was holding on to through all the ups and downs. It was that promise from God that was always on Jacob's mind. And now as he comes to the ends of his life, that promise is on his heart again. Now Jacob is is coming along and he says, Now your two sons... This would be weird. I want you to imagine this happening. Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. What What's your... I would have to have him to explain that. Like what what do you say? <laughs> yeah, I mean it would be like my dad comes along and says, "You know, Caleb and Jacob, they're mine now. From you can all the other children that you're going to have going forward, they're yours, but Caleb and Jacob are going to be reckoned as mine." And as the father Joseph, like there's there's no protest, you know. He's not like, oh, "I don't like that idea." And do
1: you think it's just that Joseph was thinking Oh, right before this was, you know, the blessing given to Abraham, and now this is this generation.
0: You know, that probably had to sweeten the deal a little bit, putting Mm -hmm. those two together. Yeah. And this is going to be the first generation. So, Abraham, the blessing went to Isaac, along with tons of privilege, the land, a lot of that. Then you come and you have Isaac, and Isaac, all of it goes to Jacob. Well, now Jacob has 12 sons, right? But all of them. And I don't know that they know this at the time. There seems to be some anticipation that all of Jacob's sons are going to to receive in a way that's different than everybody before. Because Jacob is going to announce blessings on each of these individual sons in the next chapter, right? There's something that is unique and special about them. But it's like Joseph is going, you mean that my two sons will be counted as... Sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, which means they're going to be tribes of Israel, which they are. And I think Joseph recognizes that there's something about that that is quite the honor. And so you remember, what does a firstborn get in the ancient world? They get an inheritance, but how much Two of, thirds. An, of an inheritance? The two-thirds? Not two-thirds. No, they get double. Double portion. Portions. So everybody else only gets one, but he's coming to Joseph, who's clearly his favorite son from, from birth. right? He, everybody was afraid he's going to get the blessing, the inheritance, the birthright. He's getting it all. And he's coming to, to Joseph and he's saying, hey, everybody else, every, each of the other sons, Judah, Levi, Simeon, all of them are going to get one tribal allotment in the land, one blessing. But through you, you now get two. Manasseh and Ephraim. So in a huh. sense, Joseph here is cleaning up. He's getting a double portion from his father. And so he's okay with it, which is a weird thing, because when you think about the tribes of Israel, guess what? Joseph is not one. Hmm. It's Manasseh and Ephraim that take his spot as a tribe of Israel, which is just kind of fascinating. So he was, he's thrilled with it. Hey, my legacy, my sons, here, they're yours. And you get the sense that this is a great honor.
1: Also very humble of him, I think. Because yeah, yeah, he's getting it, but it's not him, really. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, he's looking at the promise, because remember, God, God gave him dreams of people bowing down to him. Like, that's what Joseph hung his hat on. But God came to Jacob specifically and said, your children are going to be blessed through them is coming the kingdom and all that stuff. And so... Joseph, in a sense, is looking at the blessing of Jacob and is saying, "Like in my dream everybody's bowing to me, but I haven't gotten a covenantal promise from the Lord appearing to me saying, your descendants. And so by, by letting them be adopted by Jacob, they're sharing in that promise that God had made to Jacob's sons. Hmm. And so this is a great win for Joseph. Verse 6, it says... And the children that you father after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and in their inheritance. One of the things that's interesting is he says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. We, we skipped right over that, which means what about Reuben, Reuben and Simeon? They're out. It's, it's like they got bumped. <laughs> you just got bumped over. Like, I'm going to treat them as my first and second born now. This is going to help their dysfunction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now there's grandchildren involved. Uh, Not just brothers. Thinking. Yeah,
0: You just got skipped over by the grandkids that he just met. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know yet. Probably he doesn't run and say, Hey, Ruben and Simeon meet your new superior brothers. But what he's saying is they, they have, they're going to be highly ranked or treated in the family with every bit as much the authority and weight as my first and second born sons would be. So, He continues, he says, as for me, when I came from Padan, which is where Laban was, where he was out of the country for 20 years or so, he says, when I came back from Laban's land to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go on Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, why does he throw that in there? I am not 100% sure. But it's like you can tell that grief is very much on his heart. And I think what he's saying is, I only got to have two sons through Rachel, and I would have loved to have had more, and so I'm going to take in your sons and consider them sons through her as well. So in that moment, Joseph is looking at his sons as brothers, <laughs> you know, which is kind of different. So verse 8, it said, When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Now, that's kind of weird. What is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Because remember when they came back, Jacob and Joseph have already seen each other. But Joseph is on administrative duty, and then he takes his family, and he goes and settles them in Goshen. And so he's never gone back home to take his two sons and introduce them to Jacob. So now... Joseph goes home, gets his sons, goes on the journey to Goshen at the city of Ramses and introduces Jacob for the first time to his grandkids. So he says, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And the eyes of Israel, which is Jacob, were dim with age so he could not see. Why would it tell you that? What's that remind you of? Is...
1: What generation was it?
0: What Jacob did to Isaac. Yeah. Remember, Isaac is blind. Jacob goes before him to get the blessing. Isaac can't see, and Jacob pulls a fast one on him. So now you have Jacob who can't see, and you get kids coming for a blessing. And so Joseph brought them near him. And by the way, what when, when Isaac was deceived by Jacob to give the blessing, who was supposed to get the blessing? Esau. Esau, because Why? He was the firstborn. He was the firstborn. And uh, so, so Esau should have gotten the blessing, but because Isaac was blind, he was deceived, and Jacob, the younger, got the blessing. So now follow where this goes. It says, verse 11, And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And that word see, you can't see, he's blind, but it's like he's gotten to meet them also. So Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both. This is, you can tell, like this is a solemn, special moment for Joseph, like face to the ground. And he, it says Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. So it's like he's saying, okay, the right-handed blessing is going to get the superior blessing, So I want that to be Manasseh because he is the firstborn and so he comes near him. And it says Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. So he's crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd. I love that he's you know, referring to God as a shepherd, this is one of the first instance, if not the first instance, where God is referred to as the shepherd. All, all my life long to this day, he's the angel, which is interesting because who's the angel of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus. So he's not talking about some spiritual nebulous you know, spirit God out there, he's talking about, no, 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 I met the angel of the Lord. I, I saw him. I wrestled him. And he has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, here we go. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother, shall be greater than he. Now, what's that remind you of? That's the promise that was given to Jacob's mom, Rebecca. The older shall serve the younger. And so now Jacob is carrying on this pattern where God always picks the underdog. Never the firstborn, it seems. Always the underdog. And he's saying, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying... By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, What's interesting about that, that's not a throwaway line. It sounds confusing, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm over here like, what a way to end it. <laughs> he says, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand. Do you know what the, the Hebrew there, it's not mountain slope. Like, click on that. Can you see what the Hebrew word is? Instead of mountain slope, what's the actual Hebrew there? Shechem. Shechem. What's interesting about Shechem Shechem, if you Ugh, place where all the bad stuff happened. It's the place where the genocide happened, right? Ugh. Where Simeon and Levi went in and killed a bunch of people. And now Jacob owns that. What does he say here? I'm giving to you Shechem, right? Which is, if you remember, that's the place where both mountains, the Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, they both of those mountain slopes come down and Shechem is right there. So he's saying, I'm giving to you, Shechem, and then look what he says, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Uh, No, (laughs) Simeon and Levi did that, and you were not too proud of them, right? But because this now belongs in the family of Jacob, he's gifting Shechem to these two brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so when they come into the land, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be territories. And right, right at the border of those two tribal allotments is the city of Shechem.
1: What you got? Uh, that just makes it make a lot more sense than if you
0: just read this one weird thing about one mountain slope. So, But what, what is also interesting is he's saying, you know, you're going to stand in the place of Reuben and Simeon. Well, Simeon is the one who took Shechem. And now Ephraim and Manasseh are the ones who are going to inherit it. Is this interesting at all?
1: It's like the end of every movie. Yeah. A lot of action, then it kind of just wraps yeah, up.
0: Here's here's the resolution where it's yeah. like, you know, ten years later, this happened to Billy.
1: Yeah, we <laughs> like that.
0: All right, so now we get into chapter forty nine, and this is when Jacob calls together his twelve sons and he is going to deliver the blessing over all of them. And some of them are amazing, right? Some of them are blessings that you would want spoken over to you. And some of these are like, wow, like this is not something that I would want. And so it's I wanna clarify up front that there's you know, you can have a blessing that is prophetic, or you could have a blessing that's like prescriptive. So what I mean by that is like the spirit of God can can show you what a person's future is going to look like and then you speak them over that whether it's good bad or ugly that's prophetic like it's the lord's pronouncement over their life or there's one where we're more familiar with it where like if i'm if i just go up to jacob or caleb and i want to speak a blessing over their life i'm just going to say you know may you live a long time may you have a godly house may you have godly children and offspring you know, may may you get the desires of your heart. You know, you can think of a million different ways that you would want to speak a blessing over your kids, but you're not going to throw in, you know, may you be a, a snake, you know, or something like that. You know, may you be a ravenous wolf, but you're going to find things like that in the blessings to the twelve sons. So, what I don't want anyone to understand. Jacob is not saying, and part of it is from his experience, like there's going to be a generational curse because of these kids' actions, but it's prophetic for generations to come. In other words, this is going to, in some sense, define your descendants for centuries to come.
1: Okay, so he's talking... Even some parts about the tribes that will follow, not just Dan himself or... Correct. ...Benjamin himself. So Correct.
0: And that's where we see it throughout the Old Testament. You see things pop up and... Yeah, there's, there's things that if, if you were looking at the actual son, it wouldn't make sense in their lifetime. It has to be about the tribe to follow. And, and we'll see that bear out. Okay. So, And he's going to start with the sons of Leah and then he's going to hit the rest of the family. So this is not in order of age, but it is in order of which wife. So it starts with Leah, and it'll go through each of her six by age, and then it'll jump to the next wife's kids or or maidservant's kids. And so here we go. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble. And listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And which is, he's also, they're all like sitting around as well, you know. So I don't know if he's doing this like one by one, like, Reuben, let's go for a walk. No, I think they're all standing there. So you're you, hearing you this. You hear your name and you stand up. Maybe you go to the front in the classroom, but. He put your hand his hand on your head and then gives this blessing. Because I want you to imagine this, because some of these are. They're, they're rough. Hard. They're hard. So Reuben. You were my firstborn. Now, who's Reuben? Reuben is the one, like, if we're putting in our, our review, he's the one who slept with Jacob's concubine. That, that's no good. He's the one that opposed Joseph being harmed at the beginning, if you remember. To make up for sleeping with his dad. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> probably. But he, he's also the one who says, hey, send Benjamin down to Egypt. And if we're wrong, I'll kill my two sons. Like, he's. But again, his two sons. Right, yeah know, so so, but you get that. Reuben is just you get the picture, like he's very unsettled, wishy washy, back and forth, and so that's going to be the nature of his blessing, right? He says he gets a compliment to start off. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent and dignity, and preeminent in power. In other words, because you're my firstborn, you are going to stand out. You're going to have dignity and power based on that. Then verse 4 unstable as water. Like can you think of anything that's less stable? Like what, you know, if you're trying to build something out of water. Like by itself water just goes wherever it wants to, right? It mm-hmm. always finds a way where it wants to go. It's it's unstable. You can't build on it. It's not firm. So he says you shall not have preeminence, which is weird. Because in the previous line, he said preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now he's saying, you shall not have preeminence. because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This is this just as a family meeting, this just got really weird. It starts off on a bad note. Reuben, you're my firstborn. Like here's everything because you're my firstborn that you inherit. And yet, because you're unstable, you will quickly lose that. Like the the advantage that you have of being my firstborn, you will squander quickly. So you just can't live up to it. Yep. So you you would think as the firstborn, you're going to be the one who carries the mantle. You're going to be the one who has the fame and the glory and everything else. You're going to squander it quickly. You will not keep it. So it's like, oof, all right. Well, there's one down. <laughs> so we come to the next, Simeon and Levi, and now, granted, the first three of, of Jacob's sons are the most troublesome, <laughs> notorious, notoriously troublesome. Remember, Simeon and Levi, who are lumped together in their blessing, are the ones who committed the genocide against Shechem. They're the ones who hatched the scheme and went in and killed all the men of Shechem. And so it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords, let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And Then he says, I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. And so that's definitely talking about the generations to come because what you'll find when the tribal allotments are given, Simeon is given an, an allotment that's in the middle of Judah's territory. It's in kind of the desert terrain. It's not a great territory. They're not going to be a big dominant tribe. They get kind of a womp womp stretch of land where Beersheba is. It's it's you know just sand essentially. <laughs> And then Levi literally will be scattered because in the law of Moses, they become the priest and they have no territory of their own. Mm. So they, they have sanctuary cities where priests are going to be throughout each of the 12 tribes, but they don't get any land that like is their allotment. And so when you think, this is where it gets confusing because you have 12 tribes, right? But in the tribal allotments, and when you think of the land, you have no land for Levi and you have no land for... For Joseph, those are replaced with Ephraim and Manasseh. Mm. So it stays 12, even though they're not literally the sons of Jacob. So their blessing is no bueno. Then you get to Judah, and this is absolutely all positive. And what's significant about Judah?
1: He had a messy beginning. But in the end, it seemed like he was really transformed and renewed by the way he handled the Joseph-Benjamin
0: situation. Yeah, he becomes the Christ-like figure that says, I'll lay my life down for Benjamin. And so in this, Judah is actually going to get a prophecy that says, you're going to be the kingly line, which means Jesus is going to come from you. But listen to the the blessings that come from this, and imagine this is coming from Jacob's hand. Now... This is real easy to read right past, but if you've been following us from Genesis 37 up until last week, <laughs> he doesn't like these sons. Like You get the sense that they're very much second-class citizens. If you were reading the first three blessings, you'd be like, yep, this fits. <laughs> you know, that He doesn't like these guys. So you're expecting when you get to Judah that he's going to be like, Judah, you're a scoundrel, and your blessing is going to be yuckety-yuck too, but it's overwhelmingly positive, which shows you, I think, he had seen the transformation in Judah, hmm. and he knew that Judah was willing to lay down his life for Benjamin. And so he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now, whoa, take that, Joseph. Because what's what's the prophecy that's been driving the story from the beginning? It's Joseph dreaming about sheaves and stars bowing down to him, and here you have Jacob who comes along and is offering a prophetic blessing that says, okay, that's been fulfilled. That, that's, you know, they've bowed down to you, but now let me reverse it for all time. The descendants are going to bow down to Judah's descendants, hmm. not yours, Joseph, Judah is going to become the one to whom everyone bows. And this is going to be the lion of Jesus. That shouldn't come as any big surprise to you. Verse 9, it says, Judah is a lion's cub. So from that moment on, Judah is associated with the lion. Jesus is going to describe himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You're always victorious. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. He is powerful, and yet he has a restrained power, is the idea. Like a lion just walks around with a confidence. You know, it knows when it wants to hunt, it knows its prey, it's very deliberate about it. But you wouldn't dare walk up to a lion and smack him on its mouth because <laughs> even if he's not hungry, you're not going to win that one. Then he says this the scepter, which is something a king holds, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute or Shiloh comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, which is, that's nations there, by the way. The, the word um, is very much pointed to that, goyim. And so it's all nations are going to eventually bow down to this guy. They're going to declare their obedience to To Judah, which is like, imagine hearing that. Like, if you're Judah, what are you thinking? How is this going to manifest itself? Like, what does this look like? You know, are they thinking through that this is for kids? Is this this is for Jesus ultimately? Like, do they have in mind the Abrahamic blessing that's just passing along the the way to the Messiah? So verse 11 continues and says, binding his foal to the vine. In other words, you're going to be in a place that just is wealthy. You've got vineyards, right? And his donkey colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, which is just a weird thing. What it's saying you're just going to be overwhelmingly blessed. Just, I mean, you just want, you have so much wine, you just wash your garments in it. But that's also prophetic. It says, and his vesture and the blood of grapes they would have heard that, and it's just opulence, right? Like you just have more than you know what to do with. You're washing your clothes <laughs> in wine, making them look regal colored, right? They're, they're becoming that deep, dark, scarlet, purplish red. That's what you're going to be clothed in. But then think about this as it refers to the tribe and the ultimate fulfillment of this in Jesus. Washed in wine, washed in blood, so in some sense it's it's saying, Judah, you're going to be overwhelmingly blessed with an abundance, but at the same time it's prophetically looking forward to Jesus, who literally will wash his people with blood. It says his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. In other words, he's tremendously healthy. I think that would be a wild thing to go
1: through was Judah. This could be like the first proud statement that you've ever heard from your father. Yeah. And you're probably waiting for the ball to drop the whole time after <laughs> the first ones you just heard. So, yeah, to take that in as him would have been, I don't even know how to
0: imagine that. You know, you know when, you, when I think of Judah, when he says, I'll give my life for Benjamin. Yeah. One of the things that makes that so weighty and emotional for me to consider is Judah is saying, I know you won't care so much if I'm lost. Mm-hmm. So I'll lay down my life to make sure you get back the son you love. That's that's how Judah sees himself in his father's eyes. And there's something outrageously heavy to that. There's something, you know, we're all chasing our father's approval or someone's approval like that. And there's people sometimes where it's really hard to get a word like that from your dad and you think, man, I would give anything, <laughs> you know, to, to be able to hear that. And here you have, Judah, who basically has said, I know you love Benjamin and wouldn't care if I'm lost. To hear your dad come to you and say, No, 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 they're going to bow to you now. You're the one yeah. would have been mind blowing. I mean, and that's why, like, you can't read past these blessings without remembering mm. what's come, because this is where you not only see Judah's redemption, where he's being praised by the father, but there's, in a very real sense, a redemption of Jacob in this moment, where he is not so idolatrous of Joseph and Benjamin, and now he gives the highest honor to one of Leah's sons. So it's it's a redemption of their marriage and how he looked down on her, and it's you know now her son is exalted. Everything about this is just really amazing. It's beautiful. It's it's wonderful, and I really I would love to have in a time machine be able to watch Judas face like you're talking about. Watch Judas face as he hears those words. I bet, I bet there were some misty eyes for, for that one. So then he jumps into the last two sons uh, we got here for Leah. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, which this tells you it's not talking about Zebulun, the person who's living in Egypt, because Ramses is nowhere near the sea. But the tribal allotment of Zebulun runs from uh, Galilee over to the Mediterranean. So the tribe shall Dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. His border shall be at Sidon. Well, that's a good blessing. Wonderful. That's that's great territory. Then Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But he's crouching between the sheepfolds, which the, the literal words there are between saddlebags. In other words, he's he's like lazy, but he's between things that would make him a servant. That makes sense. Like you put these over the top of a, a donkey. Okay. And now all of a sudden it's a servant. And that's where he's going with this. He saw that his resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. And so what is Issachar going to be known for? They're going to be routinely plundered by foreign invasions with people taken off into slavery. And so that becomes one of their fates. Not the best one. Yeah. And not not excited to get that blessing, it's but okay, down. you know. I I get a nice land. All right. That's I'm a strong donkey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so then we get to Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So, one of the most mm-hmm. famous judges from the book of Judges is a guy by the name of Samson. He is going to be from the tribe of Dan, so he shall judge his people. As Samson's far and away, I think the most famous of the judges. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider falls backwards. In other words, it's, he's crafty, he's sneaky, he surprises. Uh, and when you get to Samson as a judge, you know he's very much crafty and sneaky, and he's constantly surprising people and setting fields on fire and doing all kinds of rough things that are
1: it's one way to tell <laughs> Samson's
0: history. <laughs> you know, crafty, maybe. I mean, he's the story of Samson, he starts off as quite he's a scoundrel. So we'll just leave it at that. So right in the middle, now we're 6 in and Jacob takes this, you know, intermission and he just says, "I wait for your salvation, O Lord." So you got six sons that I've just blessed, and then halftime. Yeah, it's halftime, and Jacob is having a little worship moment, like, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Like, none of this matters. It's it's your salvation. Yeshua is literally how it says it there. You know, you're the one who has to save this. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So that's, I mean, a mixed bag. <laughs> I mean, really imagine receiving these. Asher gets a great one. So I, I know someone who named their kid Asher, and that's such a great namesake. Asher's food shall be rich. He shall yield royal delicacies. And oh. the, the name even means happy. Like everything about Asher is just great. You know, wonderful. You know, Asher's going, that's it. <laughs> I'm out. Run. <laughs> see you guys. he continues. Naphtali... Is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. So this is, you know, Naphtali is going to be up in the region of Galilee, uh, Zebulun, Naphtali, are the regions where Jesus does a lot of his early ministry up up in the northern region. It's beautiful up there. So if if you've ever seen that region, it really is beautiful. Lots of streams and and greenery, and so you can imagine a doe running around up there. Where the further south you get, the more barren looking it gets joseph comes along and he's going to get a really great blessing you know it's it's not judah but it's pretty great joseph is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring just which is fed you're just going to have an abundance of fruit this is just overflowing goodness his branches run over the wall nothing is going to contain his fruitfulness which has been the story of his life. Every time that he's put in a situation that seems like it's going to crush life, his fruitfulness just overflows and overtakes any obstacle. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. It's like he he's not spooked, he's not, you know, drawn into a nasty fight. Um His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you? By the almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above? Blessings of the deep that crouch beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. Blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And so that's an, a beautiful blessing. Like you I imagine Jacob with tears in his eyes, giving that blessing. And then he closes with the twelfth and final son, which has been, since Joseph disappeared, this was the favorite son. This was the son that we were talking about. Is you know the idolatry? Like he's guilty of idolatry. There's too much wrapped up in Benjamin, and so of all the sons, this one is by far the most surprising to me. He says Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. And it's like, like I guess you know he's he's victorious. You know he's getting what he wants. He. Yeah, is ravenous always bad? I mean, no, but a wolf is like super aggressive predator. That's not a good thing in the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's, mm. it's just not. But it's victorious. But it's like it's, it's saying he's, he's going to get what he wants, but man, be careful. Be careful around him because he his descendants are going to be the type that you don't want to get caught by on a, on a dark night because they will take you down and take everything you have. And so I'm going to pause here for a moment. We're going to get kind of in a, what I think is a really beautiful. So we've just gone through all these blessings, which, you know, the Bible lays out and it can be kind of like, all right, get on with it. Let's get to the narrative. But what's interesting when it says that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, what it's pointing to, because it's not just toward Benjamin, it's toward all of his descendants there is going to be this interesting dynamic that runs from the book of Genesis until you get to the New Testament of this weird relationship between Judah and Benjamin. So what did Judah do for Benjamin in the book of Genesis? He would have given his life for him. He would have given his life for if it Benjamin. it came to that. And Jacob's like, no, no, no! I don't, I don't want to give my Benjamin. I don't want to risk Benjamin. And Judah says, "I'll give my life to protect Benjamin." And you think, man, these are going to be really close. Like in the tribal allotments, they're right next to each other. Like they're they should be, they should be close. Judah and Benjamin are right next to each other. Like they they should be pals. But if you jump into let's let's fast forward through the stories of Scripture. And the next major story that you find where these two have a big part to play against each other, you know what it is? It's a genocide. It is one of the most disturbing stories in all of Scripture, and I'm going to summarize it, and it's one of these stories that you probably should never summarize because it's one of the worst in the whole Bible. But there's a story where a a, a, a Levite has a concubine, right? Which is you shouldn't have. A Levite's, you know, one of the more, supposed to be one of the more godly, the priestly kind of line. Well, he's got a concubine, which he shouldn't have. And for some reason, she runs away from him, and she goes back to her hometown of Bethlehem, which is in the territory of Judah. And so she's she's there, and this Levite chases her down and says, no, you left me. You're not allowed to leave me. The dad is trying to plead with the the Levite, to marry her and make her more than a concubine, but he doesn't, and eventually he takes her and starts marching north, and he gets as far as Gibeah, which is one of the major cities in the territory of Benjamin. And so that night, all the men of the city bang on the door, and they're demanding—it's a repeat, it's a retelling in some sense of the story of Sodom. Judges 19— and they're coming to rape someone in the house, and this guy takes his concubine and throws her outside. And they abuse her savagely all night and in the morning when this Levite who managed to go to sleep, even as his concubine was being abused, when he wakes up, he finds her dead at the doorway. It's a, dist- it's a super disturbing story. And so then, to make this story even more disturbing, he cuts up her body and sends pieces of her body to all the tribes, saying, this is what Benjamin has done. Are you going to tolerate this, or are you going to give justice? And so what happens? All the tribes mobilize, and Judah goes up against Benjamin and hits the city of Gibeah, with a full assault, and on the third attempt, they just go in and they smash everybody, and then all of the nations of Israel, all the tribes of Israel get bloodthirsty, and they go beyond justice, sound familiar, and they go in and they literally commit a genocide against the people of Benjamin until there's only 300 men left. One of the most shameful periods in all of the story of the Bible, and it's showing that Israel, when left to themselves, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, they become one of the most, under a theocracy, they become one of the most wicked places on earth. It is The Bible is giving a strong warning against theocracy in that passage. So why do I tell you all that? Well, here you have Judah who's going up against Benjamin. Because why? What did Benjamin do? Benjamin mistreated a concubine from the city of Bethlehem in the territory of Judah, hold that. Fast forward a couple of generations, and Israel's like, we need a king. We, you know what? We need a king. And uh, so who do they go to? They think, well, this tribe over here has been decimated. There's only 300 men left. <laughs> you know, They're not a threat to anybody. We'll make Benjamin have our first king. And so they choose a guy who's from the city of Gibeah, the city of the rapists. So Saul, the first king of Israel, is probably a child or a grandson of a rapist that was annihilated, and he becomes the first king. Okay, so here we have Saul of Gibeah of Benjamin, and then who is his major adversary going to be? David. Who is from? I'm guessing the tribe of Judah. From the town of? He's a shepherd boy in the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Geez, that sounds familiar. So wait a minute. Someone from Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin begins to persecute someone from the tribe of Judah in the town of Bethlehem. And you find this animosity that starts going between Judah and Benjamin. That That's a thread that runs through the story. So let's just fast forward and get to the end of the story. In the New Testament, Who is it that was known to persecute the church? He called himself a persecutor of the church, that he would round up Christians and kill them. Oh, you're talking about Paul? Paul, what tribes he come from?
1: I'm guessing the tribe of Benjamin.
0: Yeah, he says, I am a, a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. And he's all proud of that. So here you have a guy from Benjamin who is persecuting who? Jesus, who is born in the tribe of... Judah, born in the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And so, this 2,000 year feud that develops between this ravenous wolf, Benjamin, which ravenous wolf defines these people who are trying to rape the concubine ravenous wolf defines Saul who is trying to put David to death after he's so jealous that David is getting all of the praise of the people for killing Goliath so he tries to hunt him down and kill him he's a ravenous wolf and then you get to the New Testament where you find the apostle Paul who is a ravenous wolf hunting down the church But for the first time, what happens? You have Judah who stands up, and it's like bookends to the story. Judah was willing to die for Benjamin. You know, Jesus died for Benjamin. Jesus died for the apostle Paul, who is so proud of his legalism and being from the tribe of Benjamin and being a Pharisee of Pharisee and all of this stuff, until Paul is crushed by the fact that, wow, the lion of the tribe of Judah died for me. And so the story that you find in Genesis of Judah being willing to die for Benjamin, being willing to lay his life down, is perfectly bookended after all of these stories in Scripture where Judah has redeemed Benjamin. And now, of all people in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul has done more to evangelize the world than anybody before or since besides Jesus, right? He takes the gospel to Europe. He's writing you know, a third of our New Testament. And so the greatest champion of the tribe of Judah, the one who finally received that scepter, and the crown belongs to him, and the obedience of nations belongs to Jesus, and who's his biggest champion? Benjamin. And that's just kind of a cool bow wrapped up where these two tribes are finally redeemed and brought together again,
1: that is wild. I mean, I didn't. I've never heard any of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's way too much to be an accident that it's always Benjamin assaulting somebody from Bethlehem. Which, which, what is Bethlehem? It's a podunk town. Like the Bible, Micah laughs at Bethlehem that it's the least of the clans of Judah, and yet you you see, you know, the concubine. It's from Bethlehem and Judah. It's it's David who's from Bethlehem and Judah. It's Jesus who's from Bethlehem and Judah. So the Bible is wanting us to see in that story that there are pictures of the gospel in all of them. It's just it's a fascinating thing. And so as you look at that, you know, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. One of the if you if you look up an, in a concordance wolf, one of the lines that you find most often is what is the promise of heaven? The wolf shall lie with the lamb. Hmm. What are you hearing that? Yeah. You know, Jesus is the lamb. So here you have the wolf shall lie with the lamb. Isaiah repeats that again and again. What is it saying? Even even the ravenous one, they're ultimately going to be tempered to where that ravenous wolf nature is going to be redeemed, to where they can lie right next to a lamb, one who's willing to give their life. Right? Just fascinating to me how that works. It's a beautiful picture of how God and his sovereignty is telling these stories, pointing us toward the the ultimate one from Bethlehem and the tribe of Judah. All right, so that is a ton of very specific blessings that have been thrown out. Um, and so now all the blessings are out. Jacob has lived his life. He's got the legacy of his sons and, and grandsons ready to go. And so now we move into the closing chapter for, for Jacob at the end of chapter 49. It says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. So it lets you know that this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I'm gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in a cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. It says there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. Which again, not only does Jacob give the blessing to Judah, which shows honor to Leah, but now he is chosen. I'm going to be buried alongside of her. And when the morning of the resurrection comes, it's Leah that I'm going to be raised up with. Which, if you can imagine how much she longed to Hmm. be loved by Jacob, that is a tremendous softening of Jacob's heart, having gone from total indifference or hatred toward her to now this is the one I choose to be buried next to, which is phenomenal. It's a beautiful picture of redemption there, too. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And this part, we're just going to cl- close going into the early part of 50 because I love how much the people loved Jacob because this would have been a new thing for him. <laughs> Everyone else was always thrilled or wanted to kill him when he left a territory. It says, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that's how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians, hear this, wept for him for 70 days. That's not like, uh, you know, we're holding a mandatory gathering. Like, they're they're weeping for him. They loved Jacob so no one, was ever, no one ever felt that way toward Jacob, but at the end of his life, he's surrounded with people who really honored him. When the days for weeping him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die, and my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return." And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, elders of his household, and all the elders in the land of Egypt. So imagine this funeral procession. As well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots, and horsemen, it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Ebel Mitraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him, as he commanded them. For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. One of the things I love about how they had to go back to Canaan, you know, they were in this region of Goshen, Blessing beyond blessing, tremendous wealth provided for. And yet through all of that blessing, Jacob never lost sight of the promise of God. And even when he dies, like the the thing that he is absolutely insistent about, I want my body buried where God promised me a land for my descendants. And so going to Pharaoh and saying, you know, this guy, that's why Joseph is kind of <laughs> trepidatious about this. Like, he doesn't want to be buried here. So, so to go to Pharaoh and be like, he doesn't want to be buried here. When the Egyptians believe you have to be buried in Egypt. And to have that much favor and faith to be able to make that request. Jacob never lost the faith of his God. In his old age, he became a very godly man that was worthy of being grieved over. And in, in his blessings to his sons, he knew salvation ultimately belonged to the Lord. And so you look at this guy who began as a total scoundrel, and you see how he landed the plane, how he closed out, and it's really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, it it'll transform you from thinking, "Why does God use people like that?" to thank God for using people like that. And that's what our God is in the business of. He loves to redeem the broken. And you see that in this story, and you're going to see that in the stories that we continue to tell. Uh, Next week, we'll be moving into the story of how they remain in Egypt, and calamity comes, and yet God is ultimately going to use that for their good, and God is going to bring about great salvation. And we're to learn a lot from that. So we will join you next week as we jump into the beginnings of the slavery in egypt in the book of exodus god bless we hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly you can find out more about out of water catch up on past episodes and access show notes at our website riovistachurch.com out of water